You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. At the heart of almost every expat story is the opportunity for reinvention. Depending on how you make your moves, you can get a fresh start. New country, new people, maybe even a new job. And the opportunity is right there to make the changes you've always wanted to, if only you're willing. But reinvention can be even more pressing for the accompanying partner, because they too might have to get on that change wagon and sometimes not by choice. Not only are they preparing for the new location, but often they have to upend their careers to make this work. And that was the case for Temkara Adun. She and her family left their native Nigeria for the Netherlands when her husband received his first expat assignment. So what did the former HR professional do? She decided that she would focus on the positive opportunities to create a new life in their host nation. And in the process, she would also build a brand that is partially an ode to her children and their Nigerian heritage. In this episode, Temkara talks about her personal and professional reinvention. She explains why she built Odunife and its foundational focus to affirm African history, culture, and languages. She discusses the key role Nigerian expat communities have played in helping her family adjust, especially early in their expat journey. And she and I spend more than enough time talking about West African cuisines and the similarities we see across the region. And while she may have traded the Dutch tulips for the Kutteri Desert, you will hear why Temkara is definitely a mother of reinvention. Welcome to the Global Chatter. All right. So we are here with another edition of the Global Chatter. And 
what has been great this season is that, you know, just like our name, I like to bring in a multitude of voices and perspectives onto the show. And I think with our next guest, for many of you, I, I think she's going to share some information and knowledge and perspectives that maybe you may not always get to hear, especially if you're coming from a Western Western point of view. And so I am welcoming Tamkara onto the podcast today. How are you doing? Wow, I'm fine, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here on your podcast. So I, I always start this thing by telling people where I, I meet folks because they get really interested because <laughs> they think all of you are interesting. <laughs> I have been following, wow. and I was gonna say, I've been following her on social media for a moment. And, and as she tells a little bit about her story, it'll become evident why I've been, I've been following her because I, I, you know, I, most people know I come from a Cameroonian background. And so anytime I see Africans that are doing major things, especially on the international stage, I want to bring them on the show because I think our voices need to be heard amongst all the voices that are being shared. And so I am excited to talk to you today. And and like I said, I, I think you, you've got some things that people need to hear. So my first question with everyone starts the same. Where in the world are you right now? <laughs> okay, so at the moment, I am in Doha, which is in Qatar. Mm-hmm. And how in the Middle East, <laughs> you're right. And I like, I, I love you because yeah. you're like, let me give them the explanation because some people will go, Yeah, where is this? I actually, you know, spoke with someone and she's in the US and she had no clue where you know Qatar was. So I had to explain, Okay, do you know Dubai? Right, it's about an hour's flight from Dubai. Yeah, yes, <laughs> so. that's the reference point for everyone. I would, when I lived there, I said the same yeah. thing. They're like, Where in the Middle East? And I would either say, Okay, it's attached to Saudi Arabia. Or yeah. do you know where or do you can you find Dubai? And they go, Oh yeah. yeah. I'm like Because everybody knows Dubai. Right. So. I mean, <laughs> I, I think the UAE has done great marketing. <laughs> so we all yeah. know about the Emirates and the Emirati. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, that's true. How long have you been out in Qatar? So I've been here for two years. I love I love that you pronounce it correctly. <laughs> it's Qatar, but I say Qatar. <laughs> Yeah, for two years. Yeah, I mean, but that's only because I live there. I'm not even going to pretend. Yeah. <laughs> if I if if I was just being normal, I yeah, no. But people go, what? Pl-? That's why they go, what place are you talking about? I'm like, this is yeah. how you say it. But yeah, that's the correct because I corrected someone once. It's not Qatar. It's Qatar, and they said no, no. It's Qatar, <laughs> you know. So it's good that you correct. You're correcting all of us, so we get the pronunciation right. Yeah, and you know, I, I think when anyone lives in that country, most most people live in Doha because that's that's the big yeah. city and that's the most. Let's be honest, the most developed yeah. <laughs> of yeah. the cities. And so, but it, I, I'm curious to hear from you. Um, you are a, you are Nigerian, and so yes. did you. Did you grow up in Nigeria predominantly? Yes, I was born, I was bred, I was <laughs> brought up in Nigeria, got married in Nigeria, had my kids ah. in Nigeria, walked in Nigeria. Okay, so, okay, so you're yeah. Nigerian for real? <laughs> yeah, like- fully. I, I, I only um, traveled abroad, you know, um, when I was an adult, you know, I was, I'd worked for a couple of years in Nigeria and oh, wow. I was fully formed. So 
it was pretty recent. You know, when I moved to um, the Netherlands, it was in 2013. But the rest of my life, you know, was in Nigeria. And I so that I think you answered something that I was I was just thinking about. Even as a child or when you were younger, did you do any international travel or was it mostly within the country? When I was a child, it was all within the country and it was mostly, um, let's say during Christmas time, you would go to visit the grandparents in the village, you know, or go to my mom's place, you know, my mom's parents' place in Lagos. I think my first, inter- my first international travel was, um, when as an adult, when I started working for a company and they sent me on a training, a training program. Where, where yeah. did they send you to? Uh, okay. So that was for a company called Schlumberger. Mm-hmm in Nigeria, in Portacot, and I went to France. And then um, I also went to Cameroon, Douala. Ah, okay. So <laughs> actually, <laughs> Cameroon, for those of you who don't know, I feel like I say this in yeah. every episode. And yeah. I actually had a Cameroonian on, so whatever. You people should listen to that episode. Cameroon yeah. is to the east. So if you can find Nigeria on the map, Cameroon is right next door to it. So I'm curious, yeah. like, so your first international flight, was it to Cameroon or was it to France? Um, my first international flight, I would say was, yeah, I think um, that was before, before I started working at this job. My first international flight, I was married then and my husband and I went to Ghana and then we went to the UK. Okay. Well, I think all Nigerians like to go to the <laughs> of UK. And then after that, you know, I started working at this job and then they sent me to um, France. France. And then to Cameroon. Yeah. Oh, no. Sorry. In second, in university, I went to Cote d'Ivoire. Ah. Yeah. I forgot that. I went Ivory, to Abidjan. Ivory Coast. So. Okay. Ivory so, Coast. Yeah. So, but this, you know, this next question I think is still applicable. I like to hear from, from Africans, especially when their early international experiences are to other African countries. Because often we talk about going yeah. west or going east or whatever. What What was the experience for you leaving Nigeria and going to Cote d'Ivoire or going to Ghana? Like, did you see similarities in kind of the way you grew up in Cam- in um, Nigeria or was it like, yeah, I definitely know I'm in a different place? Well, for Cote d'Ivoire, for sure, I knew I was in a different place because the language, first of all, was different. Mm-hmm. It's a Francophone country. So everyone spoke French. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing I recognized was there was still that community. People were open. They wanted to share with you. They wanted to show you, you know, around their cities. They wanted you to come to their house, share a meal with them. Mm-hmm. So for me, even though it was a new country, that was very familiar because that is what I would do, you know, in Nigeria if someone were to come and visit me. So another thing I noticed was, you know, in other African countries, I would say they're more traditional. Mm. I'm from Nigeria. Yeah. And we're very, we want to be really contemporary. We want to be really like, we see what they're doing in America. We want to dress like that, you know. But in countries like Cameroon and Cote d'Ivoire, mm-hmm. they had more of a grasp or a connection to their culture. You could see that they were making clothes with their native fabrics. Uh-huh. They had this sense of pride in their culture. And for me, that was really beautiful to see as well. You're right. Because I, when I tend to think of Nigeria and I... I, of course, the first place I think of is Lagos, right? It's, a, it's Lagos, such a yeah. big city <laughs> and it's such a, yeah. I mean, just be by population. And obviously, yeah. you know, being Nigerian, it having the largest, Nigeria just having, what is it? The largest African population, at least on the population, in the yeah. continent. Yeah. I tend to, when I think of Nigerians and the Nigerians I know, I do tend to think of them as being very cosmopolitan and, and very, cosmopolitan, and very urban. Yeah. Now I know Nigeria is big and that's not all Nigerians, but 
I think between Nollywood and my family, by the way, <laughs> every time I go and see my family, they're in the U.S., by the way, <laughs> there's always some Nigerian okay. movie <laughs> that is going on in the house. Yeah. So it's funny to me. And I and I have Netflix, right, that I'm seeing the films and that are coming out and they are very much cosmopolitan that I can see yeah. from your perspective that tends to be, you know, that that there's that influence in Nigeria. But then if you go to some of these other countries, you're right, it may look a little bit more traditional in comparison. Is that what you would say? Yes, I would say so. Because like you said, Nigerians, uh, you know, if you go to like Lagos is one of our um, most populated mm-hmm. cities. And if you go there, people there are so cosmopolitan. When they speak, sometimes you can't really tell if this is someone in America or UK speaking, oh. or if this is a Nigerian wow. speaking. Honestly, yeah. you know, but when I went to... Cote d'Ivoire, when I went to Cameroon, if, if, if they could speak, you could distinctly tell mm-hmm. that this is an African accent. Mm. You know, the clothes they were wearing were very, were usually traditional, you know, and um, some people on Thursdays or Fridays, they would wear um, their native, you know, attire to the office. Yeah. And I found it really refreshing. So for me, that was what I noticed. And I, I, I really loved to see because I'm an advocate for you know, keeping our culture for preserving what is uniquely us. So whenever I go somewhere and I see, or whenever I go to an African country and I see people honoring their culture, incorporating their culture into their everyday life, everything they do, for me, it's beautiful. I'm going to ask you a loaded question. <laughs> Did yeah. you have jollof rice in any of those places? <laughs> but we own jollof rice. <laughs> Nigeria, we are the, okay, so there's this competition between Ghana jollof right. rice and Nigerian right. jollof rice. And I'm a very patriotic person. You know? ah. I, I to. <laughs> don't sleep. Don't sleep on Cameroonian or Senegalese yeah. jollof rice. But anyway, carry on. I always ask the Nigerians this question. I'm just joking. Yeah. No, but I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have jollof rice in Cameroon. They, they didn't offer it to me. There was, I had some rice with some vegetable. I can't remember what it was with some vegetable sauce, Of course, you know, but yeah. But if I had to compare Ghana jollof rice and Nigerian jollof rice, of course, you know, I'm biased. I would Nigerian go for the Nigerian jollof rice. So, uh, to be honest, I think I heard yeah. the Nigerian jollof rice is better, but, you know, Ghanaians, they can leave yeah. me alone. Haters will, say, <laughs> haters will say the Ghanaian is better. No, I think exactly Nigerian the Nigerian rice. I will give the Nigerians that rice. better. And did, I mean, yeah. even with that, like, and especially talking about food, right? Because we so identify with food, even in your travels within those countries. Were there meals that you see saw that, okay, we eat this in Nigeria, or was it I we have the same ingredients, but we do something different with it? Because I know, for example, in Nigeria, you guys have something, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's called is it moi moi? Okay. Yeah, moi moi. moi. Okay. In Cameroon, we call it yeah. cocky. <laughs> but oh, yeah, really? and so I've seen it. And it's prepared. Is it prepared the same way with the beans? You grind the beans, it, you know? the, the palm oil, right? Because it's orange, right? Or red. Yeah. The color yes. is, it, yes. yeah, it, depending on how much tomatoes you put in it or oil. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then you wrap it in, yeah. um, from memory, palm leaves, leaves yeah. right? And then you cook yeah. it. Yeah. Some people even use, you know, met small metal cups. You could do ah. plastics, you know, foil. No, okay. In yeah. the States, we use foil because... We're in the States, right? But back yeah. home, they would use the leaves. Yeah, they use the leaves. So yeah. for example, I remember I was talking to my friend, she's Yoruba, and I was like, yeah, we have this thing. And she didn't know what I was talking about until I showed her a picture. And then yeah. she went, oh, that's Moi Moi. And I'm like, oh, we call it Kaki. And so yeah. I was wondering for you, even when you travel, right? Because I know that we are so attached to our food 
and how we make it because that is part of our cultural identity. Do you remember if there are any particular foods that you thought, okay, this we have this in Nigeria, but we make it different or we make it the same? Yeah, I would say, you know, in all the African countries I've been to, we have the same staple food. So we have the rice, we have the swallows, like the semovita, the, the pounded yams and all. But one of the meals that really stood out for me was in Ivory Coast, you know, and I think in fact, the food in Ivory Coast impressed me in, in general. And um, I'm a big lover of plantains. I don't know if you me know plantains. Too. What do you mean? Do I know plantains? I'm a camera. You know who? You know, real talk. I did meet an African who said they didn't like plantains. No, but we, it turns we, out they we, were like we, he's going. He's going into exile. She was east. She exile. was like eastern, though. So it wasn't even something they ate all the yeah. time. I was like, that's strange. Okay, okay yes, um, plantains that are amazing. Yeah. Big bananas so, for those of you who um, don't it, know. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I'm a lover of plantain. I eat it boiled. I eat it fried. I eat it, eat it roasted. Any way I will consume it. So any which way in, I am, I was raised in Patakot and anybody who was raised in Patakot knows our world famous bolly and fish. Huh. Bolly is really just roasted plantains mm-hmm. and it's eaten with, um, spicy fish. Yeah. So it's roasted fish, very well spiced, put in sauce. Yes. So I love it so much. And when I went to um, Côte d'Ivoire, they have something that is fairly similar and they call it aloko. <laughs> and it is in a place called aloko drum. <laughs> so it's a place, you know, like a, a building or a shack with benches, lots of music, you know, nighttime music. And then you go there and then you can order plantains and you can order roasted fish and they serve it with, you know, the chopped tomatoes, chopped onions, chopped vegetable. Very delicious. The food is delicious. The ambience is great. The music is lovely. It's nighttime. Yes. So, so I, I keep saying to myself, I need to go back to, to get that experience, you know, because it was so long ago I was in university, but I still remember how much I enjoyed going to the place for the food, for the plantains and the fish, and also for the atmosphere and the ambience and the people and the music. And I, so, and I, I always tell people don't sleep on West Africa because no, those coast, no. those countries on the coast, especially yeah. The kind of seafood you can get, the fish. Oh my gosh. Ah. Oh my god. And even and they have they have what they call brisap. I think I pronounced it correct if I remember. We call it zobo. Tell me more. In, do you know zobo? Mm-hmm. Zobo is um it's a drink. It's made from this red leaves. I think hibiscus, I'm not sure, but it's a drink. We make it in Nigeria. It's a red drink and just write it down. Just Google it, you know. It's a red drink made from hibiscus leaves. You boil it and then you put, like, you could put um, fruits in it. You could put spices in it. And when you, you're done, when you've, you've boiled it and extracted all the goodness from the hibiscus leaves and from the, the pineapples and the fruits, you, you, you put a bit of sugar or honey mm-hmm. and then you put it in the fridge, in the fridge or the freezer. And then when it's chilled, you drink it and it's so healthy so wholesome but also so good you know and um even though i'm nigerian i hadn't had zobo until i went to ivory coast and i had their brisa mm-hmm. and i had they had they, they had this drink made from passion fruits as well they, they have the best drinks in cote d'ivoire now that i I'm, now that i'm reminiscing they have the best I need to go back. So they had this um, passion fruit drink. I don't remember what it was because it was so long ago, but the brisap they had was so good. And when I got back to Nigeria years later, I discovered Zobo as well. And I was like, yeah, 
you know, this, this drink, I've had it before, you know, many years ago in Cote d'Ivoire. So yeah, this is, um, let me just stop here because I can go on and on. I'm a foodie. No, but you know what? Okay. So two things. One, I think I miss the fact, just even as you're describing Cote d'Ivoire, how you yeah. could just eat so healthy. Yes, <laughs> like without stri- like everything is, was so like yeah. when I was a kid, I'm I'm sure this is the same thing for you. There were mango and guava trees everywhere. And so yes. if you wanted a snack, you would just take a rock. No, no, <laughs> maybe it was in your name, maybe this thing was in your compound, maybe it was in somebody else's compound. It doesn't yeah, even yeah, matter. Look for a stone. <laughs> just, you know? I remember this yeah. one time I called my, my my older sister and I said, You remember that one time? We went and took mangoes we were eating and we were in the compound and, and it was at night. So, you know, you eat, this is bad. You eat and you don't throw the seed, right? I remember yeah. one time we threw the seed. If you don't know, it's a big seed. And we heard, hey, because the thing had hit somebody on the head. Who was oh walking my on God. the street? But I miss, like, just you describing, I, I miss yeah. even the beaches in Cameroon where you would get roasted fish, roasted shrimp, roasted any seafood. Yeah. Because and spicy like west africans if there's anything they can do is they can roast the mess out of something they could roast the fish yeah. the chicken that's the one i haven't had in a minute roasted chicken yeah. roasted fish and then whatever plantain or whatever meat roasted ah, the meat suya. yes soya yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. so. man wow. okay well now that i want to eat that <laughs> so so you know where you're going. You know where you're going for your next uh, um, I, holiday destination. Yeah, I, you're going to Cote of course. No, really. I've heard. I've heard good things about two places: Abidjan and Dakar. I've heard a lot about yeah. Senegal. Oh, you know what? This is just where I line because I've been saying to myself, I need to go to Senegal. Yeah. I even wrote it down. I need yeah. to go to Senegal in 2022. So the fact that you mentioned this, <laughs> you know, sign. I want to go and eat. I want to go and eat Thibodien. How do they pronounce it? Thibodien. What, what's know? in it? It's, it's, it's this meal. I've seen it a lot. They, it's rice. It's a rice based meal, but there's so much in it. They put aubergines, there's fish, oh, wow. there's vegetables, yeah. you know, but the way they prepare it, you it know, it looks good. It looks so good. And I said to myself, I have to go to Senegal to eat the Thibodien. I, I know my pronunciation is wrong, pro- probably, but that's the way I saw the spelling. <laughs> so that's I said, the I eat this food. <laughs> I, I remember though, I always thought one of the challenges, and I think it has gotten better, is is traveling within West Africa and even to other parts of Africa. Because I remember when I was growing up as a child, it used to be a little bit more difficult. And I'm hoping that now, I, I mean, even listening, listening to your experiences, traveling from one country to another, especially because, you know, it's, it's shorter to fly, <laughs> to yeah. be able to go to to many of these places. Because I... So often, I mean, when I was a kid, everybody talked about going west, right? Or going, they're going to mm-hmm. Europe, right? I'm sure you heard that, right? Yeah. Nobody yeah. was talking about, uh, let me. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> well, yeah. we know, right? Yeah. <laughs> nobody, yeah. nobody was talking to themselves. Oh, let me go and see the country that is next door. Let me go and see Togo. Yeah. Let me go and see Benin. Let me yeah. go and see Ivory Coast. Yeah. We don't, we don't do that. Yeah. We always were like, Let's go west. But it's, it's, it's marketing. It was marketed to us that if you go to the global north, this Europe or America, they have this, the streets With are gold. gold, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's marketing and you want what you can see. If some, if a picture is shown to you a hundred times a, a day, you develop an appetite for it. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. No, 
And then you're watching the TV and you're seeing Hollywood and what the, you know, they're eating pizza in America. And, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's Disneyland and all that. You want to go. Right. right? And, and, and especially I think for the older generation of Africans, I mean, now we have social media so we can see things better yeah. and we can see things yes. a little bit more real. And, right. Yeah, and we're telling our stories. So we're communicating. Yeah. You know? Because I, when I think about so. when my, my family moved, in the set, there was no social media. So everything people relied yeah. on is if you had an aunt or an uncle, they told you yeah. by phone or yeah. by telegram, as my mother <laughs> tells me. Yeah. And yeah. then that's how you knew about the West. But you didn't. It's funny. We didn't have the same. There wasn't as much the same curiosity about the countries that are around us. And and the thing yeah. that always that frustrated me was that. We can know so much Western history. But we don't know as oh. much, and I will get into that later on, but we don't know as much African history. Like we may even know our country if we're good, but we don't necessarily know like our neighbors in the same way that we may work, know what's hap- what happened in the Western context, yeah. right? So yeah. let's flip this because we talked about your first trips to Africa, but when you, when yeah. you were an, as an adult and as an employee, you got to go to France. So what yeah. was it like going, like what time of year and what was it like going to your first Western country or leaving the continent? My first visit to a Western country was, um, was to the UK. Okay. I went to see my, I just got oh, married yes. and um, it was in 2006 okay. actually, okay. you know, I went to, I went with my husband and I had a little baby. <laughs> so we went to the UK and that was my first experience of being, you know, in Europe, you know, and it was cold. We went, it was so cold. It was my first experience. It was, it was, it was winter actually. Oh no. But it was a holidays. So we, 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 it was holidays. So we're like, you know, my husband was off work. I was off work. And then we said, okay, let's travel and let's go and see his brother in the UK. And it was so cold. And I remember distinctly, my daughter was really small. She was just a few months old, maybe two months, two and a half months uh, old. So we Mama, you were brave. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You were brave. You took a two month old in winter to the UK. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She was really young, but I was on holiday and you know, it was maternity yes. leave. I had some maternity leave and I was like, okay, let me just, let's just, we have this holiday now. Let's just travel, you know, and go. And then when I come, you know, get, do some shopping. And when we come back, I'll return to work. That was the idea. So I remember I went somewhere with her, I bundled her up very nicely. <laughs> and I took her somewhere. I will never forget this story. We went out and it was cold. And I was looking at her and she shivered and she closed her eyes. And I swear, I was a real mother. I thought she had died. I, I literally thought she had shook her. No. In my mind, I was like, this Kill my child. baby. God. We're laughing. Yeah. We're laughing because then, we know, you know she's alive. But that story. <laughs> yeah, she's alive. But then, you know, I was a new mom, you know, and every everything was a cause for panic, you know, because you know, I wanted to be sure that oh for a second my heart caught and I was like, wow, you know. <laughs> why did I leave why did yeah, I bring but, my child here? <laughs> what yeah. But but that was my first experience, you know, abroad and then with the winter, with the cold. And I was just really impressed with the shops, yeah. how big they were and you know, everything and, you know, the transport system. Yes. And how, you know, everything well, seems so, organ- so organized. And run on and time. I know. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And then the, the, I know this is silly, but then the fact that you go out and then it was so cold that when you, you exhale, there's this yes. cloud of smoke that was like really, for me, it was like, wow. Can I, what is can I tell you something funny when you're talking about that? When I was yeah. applying to go to university, so everybody knows in terms of my story, born in the US, but then moved to Cameroon when I was 10 and then came back for university at 17. I was looking at some universities and I was like, oh, the pictures are so nice. There's snow on the ground. It's pretty. I'm going to love it. And my mother looked at me and said, you know, you're going to have to walk to school in that. Like they don't (laughs) They don't cancel. As soon as that woman said that, I started looking at schools where it did not snow at all, where it was in work. <laughs> and to this day, well, thank I, no, but mom. I thank her because honestly, I, I don't like cold. I have managed to live everywhere where it stays yeah. hot. So I don't like cold. So that. No, but when it's too cold, it's yeah. stressful. I mean, you know, it's the, 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 if it's snowy and then, you know, you need to trudge in the snow. To get but first you have going. to put all these layers on. And I'm then, not built yeah, for this. I am built know? for warm climate. <laughs> And then, you know, the gray, you wake up in the I don't morning, like it's gray, you go out, you come back, it's yeah. gray, you know. And especially, depressing. I'm thinking, especially like someone like you who grew up in an area, because I grew up in the same place where the sun is always, yeah. shi- it, <laughs> you know, you're being beaten by you the need, sun. You need, <laughs> we, yeah, and we actually, the sun gives yes. us energy. You know, when the sun is out, your mood is elevated, you're happy, you know, you feel more energetic. We need vitamin D. Yes. Sun. Yeah, vitamin D. Yeah, we actually need it. Yeah, so. I don't. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So your first experience is basically where this place is cold, but they have some things that are nice, right? <laughs> you can see the stuff. Yeah, they have nice stuff. They have nice things. You know, I, I, I could, I could be here, you know. <laughs> if really it was not cold. cold. So I was like, it's really cold, but they had a lot of, you know, for me, everything was just new. Everything was big. Everything was so organized. They had these massive malls where you could go and then you could buy stuff. You know, for me, you know, I, when I was younger, I loved to go shopping a lot. So for me, the law was all these shops, you know, I can buy all these nice things, you know? So, so, I mean, I'm assuming as a Nigerian though, you probably had friends and family who either had traveled to the UK before or who had lived there, correct? Or you just knew people? I actually, my mom had a lot of relations in the U.S. Oh, okay. Actually. Okay. Yeah, but she used to travel and see them, but we never went when we were younger. There's five of us. Right, of course. expensive to <laughs> cut and buy tickets for five children. So she would go, you know, and see, you know, her relations, but we never used to go because it was just too expensive with yeah. five of us. But wh- where I was going with that, though, is that I imagine, though, even just the people you knew, you kind of knew what to expect, right? I mean, maybe you did not know yeah. exactly how cold the cold it was, but you knew what to expect kind of going for the first time, correct? No, I knew because I also had friends who, you know, had traveled, who were quite well traveled. So I knew. And then there was TV, you know, there was a lot of information. So it wasn't like it was new. I knew what to expect. I knew that there, there were sites to see in the UK, you know. So I, I, I had colleagues also who were from the UK mm-hmm. as well because I worked in an international mm-hmm. company. So I knew what to expect. But then again, you know, as everything new you know you have certain expectations but usually the reality (laughs) is a bit different and then you just adjust so then how did that compare then when you went to France for the first time um when I went to France France is still Europe so for me it wasn't um I was a bit more I was older Mm -hmm. then and then you know for me then it was a walk trip so I I wake up in the morning and then you know we would go as a group 
you know, for the training. And after that, either we would have bonding events or would go back to the hotel. So it wasn't like I was going for tourism. I went there for a purpose and, you know, um, the things that I did were centered around work or group activities. So I didn't do a lot of sightseeing per se. It was just really <laughs> work. And then after the work, you go back because you, I wasn't on yeah. holiday. But experience was, 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 was more or less the same, you know, France is, is still Europe. So there are lots of similarities between both countries. So then here's, here's where I'm interested in later on in your, in your career, you would move to the Netherlands, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So as I always tell people, and I'm sure you know this, there's a difference between visiting a place or a region and yeah. living in a place or a region. And so the Netherlands for you was your first expat living abroad experience. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It was. So it was. how was the transition from Nigeria where you were born and raised, got married, gave birth to children, had been working and then moving to, and what part of the Netherlands did you move to? Okay. So we moved to the Hague, yep. Den Haag yep. in the Netherlands. And moved, when we moved, um, we were moving from my husband's work. I resigned my work in Nigeria so we moved for his work. And when I first arrived in the Netherlands, I wasn't working. Yeah. So it was a time to reinvent myself, you know, now that you're not working, now that this identity you had around your work is gone yeah. and it's just you, you, what are you going to do with yourself? Yeah. So there was that. But for me, moving to the Netherlands was a huge step, very different in the sense that it wasn't just me going somewhere. We were uprooting and upheaving our whole life. Our two kids who had lived and grown up in Nigeria. My son was um, about four. Mm. My daughter was eight at the time. Wow. And we're taking them to a new culture. We moved around October. So it was getting cold in the Netherlands. They were moving to a new culture, leaving all their friends, leaving their relations, their cousins, their grandma. And we were immersing them in the culture where the language of the language wasn't even English. So the language was different. Yeah. The weather was different. The culture was different. Everything was different. And I had this responsibility to make sure that they would adjust and acclimatize smoothly yeah. without um, any harm or any disruption to their well-being. So for me, it was a huge responsibility. We were, go we were going to have to look for a house, look for schools that they would thrive in. I was going to have to figure out what I would do with myself. Would I find a job? Would I do further studies, you know? Wow. So it was really... Um, very different. It wasn't for fun. It wasn't for sightseeing. Okay. You want to see the sights, have fun and then go back. This was going to be our new life. And I, it was, a, it was huge. I would say it was different than my previous experiences abroad. And how long were you in the Netherlands for? Um, I, seven and a half years. Okay. And so, yeah. and so I guess kind of looking back, even on your experiences, if, if you were even talking to like even a younger you or someone who's like, okay, you're leaving Nigeria, you're leaving Cameroon, you're leaving Ghana. What do you, what do you think you did well, or what do you think worked out well, or what did you learn in terms of how to make such a drastic move work? Right. Because I imagine what I know, you left a place where most people look like you, you understood the culture. Yeah. You, you had a shared language, if not multiple languages, yeah. right? To a place yeah. where you're not in the majority, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and you have a very different experience than maybe some of the people around you, even though I know that The Hague is quite international in, in, in many aspects. Um, yeah. but it's not, it's not 
Nigeria in terms of no, what you no. came from. Yeah. So what is it, what is it that you, what do you think that you learned or, or did well in terms of trying to move your young African family into a Western environment? Mm, so there are two parts of this. Um, for my, I'll speak about what I did for myself and what yeah. I did for the family. So for myself, I think I did one, one thing I did well was I created, um, I was able to be nimble. Mm. So I went somewhere new and I said, okay, you're leaving you're leaving what you knew before. This is an opportunity for you to reinvent yourself, to take stock of what your life has been and see, you know, what possibilities, you know, are present for you in this new space. Mm -hmm. So you've been one way before. And if you want to do something different, this is a new opportunity in a new space where nobody knows you. You can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to be. There are really no boundaries or, um, expectations to keep you in a certain space. So I was really nimble to find out, okay, what do I want to do and what do I want to achieve? And I had certain things I wanted to achieve. And, you know, I think that, you know, in retrospect, looking back, I was able to achieve it because I was quite flexible. You know, if, mm -hmm. if one thing is not working out, then try this, try this, but always keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. So, um, for my family, I, my husband was fine. He, he, he was, he moved with, within the same company. So okay. he had, he knew his colleagues already. It was, it was the same company. He knew how things worked. You know, he, there were other, you know, Nigerians who had also been transferred, you know, so for him, it was really a smooth sailing and a, an easy integration. Okay. But for my kids, I wanted to be sure that, um, I would create a smooth transition for them where they would adjust. I wanted to be able to advocate for them effectively in situations that were potentially minefields or harsh towards them as people from Africa. Mm. Because let me just say this, I noticed that, you know, in the Netherlands, you know, it, they're quite, you know, open and tolerant, but the way they would treat a black child or a biracial child from maybe let's say America or the UK was different from how they would treat an African child from Africa. Mm. I saw it happen and I noticed it. So I wanted to be sure that I was really present and available to advocate for them when needed, you know, so they didn't have to navigate certain minefields that would distract from their learning process or their adjustment process. And I wanted to be sure that I was able to instill and reinforce African values in them, mm. maintain that sense of stuff. I didn't want them to lose themselves in this new culture, mm. you know, immerse yourself in the culture by all means, learn about the culture, expand, enlarge your way of thinking, but don't lose the core of who you are of who your ancestors are, of who your history is, of your place back home in Nigeria, of your people. I wanted them to carry it with pride, you know, like a be able to speak about, you know, the greatness of where they've come from without feeling like they had to shrink themselves or really fit themselves into a mold of what was expected of them. So those were the things I had in mind, you know, when I went there, you know, to ensure that, you know, I was able to be flexible enough to, adjust and thrive and my kids also were able to do the same and here's the thing i first of all two things i want to commend you um for being such an advocate i think even for your children because I, and i've had this conversation with quite you know particularly black parents particularly african parents but non-african parents but black parents about moving kids and and you know as someone who was especially when i talked to 
adults who are African, whose parents were expats, you know, some sometimes it's very easy for us to be like the students are in school, the school will handle it and just be a little bit hands off. And that there may be things in terms from a social or an emotional standpoint that a child might be going through that sometimes, especially like older generations, didn't weren't as involved. And so the fact that you were very conscious, let me tell you, I've talked to a lot of folks (laughs) who've kind of grown up kind of in the way your children grew up and and you you I don't want to say you're an anomaly, but but you are very much like where I hope we're going with this in terms of being very open and transparent. The second thing is I, I wonder for you, because you mentioned this with your husband and, and, and he, he was moving within the same company. Did you then in a sense already have, because there were other Nigerians who had, who were part of the, the company, did you already have at least a little bit of a community in terms of that when you came culturally or was it? No, no, we had. Okay. We had, we, in fact, we had, um, a Nigerian community mm-hmm. and when we arrived in the Netherlands, they, 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 they would, whenever a new family would come, they would send a delegation. They would come to your house, sit with you, talk to you, tell you, oh, you know, about the schools, tell you, oh, this is the church, tell you, this is where you can get Nigerian food from. Mm. So there was already a community, you know, around and my, it was really helpful for us because we would also have Every now and then we would have parties on Independence Day, we would have celebrations. So we're always meeting together in community as a collective to really interact, to commune together, to dance together, eat together, you know, visit each other. So that was really helpful as well. You know, they, they would give you information that was really needed. Right. You, know, you, you want to make your hair, this is the sound you go they, to. They bob, they bob, <laughs> Afri- they, they will bob yourself's hair. Well, this is where you go, you know, so... We were all, you know, we had this community. It was vibrant. It was warm. It was, you know, welcoming and it was really helpful to help us adjust as well. And I think that that's such, that is one of the best things of coming from a more collective society and a community oriented cultures is that one thing I I have, I have seen is that at least particularly, uh, you know, this happens with all kinds of groups, but I've seen with African communities across the world where even, even if you weren't Nigerian, (laughs) they would be like, okay, we're Senegalese, but we're going to take you in because you're you're yeah. a brother, right? You're a sister. We're, we're a communal people. We exist in community with each other. It's a spirit of Ubuntu. I am because you are. And it really reflects in everything we do. In fact, you know something? We used to buy things in bulk together and share. Of course. But these shops that used to sell to business people, we would go and chatter cartons of plantain, everything. They will now share it. Okay, you, this is this is a box of plantain. You, you and you will share. So that way we were buying things in bulk at cheaper rates and then we will distribute among ourselves. So it was, it was, it was beautiful for us to find that community, you know, in a foreign, you know, land. And it really helped, helped us. Right, well, no, I, I mean, I, I think it helped you and it helped them, right? Because people want, people yeah. want to help other people who they, they we've all been yeah. in the same position. If you've ever been in a position where you did not know what was going on. And somebody yeah. came and said, let me help you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's the beauty of, I, I, I don't think that should be undervalued in any retrospect, how much we still bring that with us wherever we are in the world. I'd love that. Yeah. So I think that that's a great stopping point for a break because I want to talk about, and you, 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 I think if anyone's already listened to you, they can tell how passionate you are about African culture and advocating for African community and whatnot. And so I want to talk about the the project that you've got going on and the work that you're doing to, to keep some of the legacy and the histories of, of, of 
African Identity Alive. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and we're going to pick up from there. Excellent. Expat Career Coaching is an excellent way to effectively strategize and plan for transitioning your higher education career expertise abroad. If you are a higher ed professional looking to do this, you should work with Rose Apple Global. Carla Frazier, who's the brain behind the brand, is a seasoned higher education pro extraordinaire who has worked around the world and knows what it takes to help her clients find the right international career pathways. After working with Carla, you will be equipped for your upcoming transition and future job searches in the international higher education market. So if you're a higher ed professional who needs expat coaching, connect with Rose Apple Global at roseappleglobal.com. And here's the best part. You can get 10% off an individual coaching service if you book by March 31st. Just mention the Global Chatter Podcast sent you. All right. So we're back. And, and one of the things I've, I've been moved by when I look at your work is how passionate you are about being an advocate for the things that you believe in. And, and particularly as we look at African identity and, and, and experiences. And so I want to talk a lot about your, con- your consulting and your coaching and your, co- like, I'm, I'm listing them because I know <laughs> that there are all these things that you do. And so I want you to tell me the name of your brand and, and why you started it. What was the mission? Okay. So the name of my company is Odunife and um, it's an online educational platform focused on three core areas, really. So we do research and we teach African history from a decolonized and African-centered perspective. And we also promote and we teach and we advocate for the preservation of African indigenous mother tongues. So we run an African language school at the moment and we teach about 17 of the major African languages. And all our tutors are based on the continent because aside from um, providing a service of teaching African languages, I wanted to look for a way to also ensure that um, financial resources and opportunities were also being funneled back into the continent. So all our teachers for the language school are based on the continent and we service and we teach a lot of students all over the world. And then the last thing that we do is that we do audit and development of curricula and educational materials on African history and heritage. And then I do some coaching and consulting on advocacy for parents um, of BIPOC children, especially in the educational um, domain. So that's what I do. And the name of the company, like I was telling you, is Odunife. And Odunife is a Yoruba word. So it means year of love. And it's really a tribute and really an honor to my kids because I named it after them. My daughter's name is Odun, short for Odunayo. And my son is Ife, short for Ife Aloha. I started this company because um, when I, I started when I moved to the Netherlands, you know, I wanted to um, ensure that I was teaching my kids about their African heritage, about their African history. I wanted them to have a strong sense of self and a connection to 
the stories of their ancestors. So my journey of teaching them took me down a path of research and learning for myself because I discovered that before I could even teach them anything, I needed to be educated about my own history, my own heritage. And a lot of the information on African history that I'd been receiving was colonized information from Mm -hmm. a colonized curriculum Mm -hmm. that I had to unlearn and relearn. So it was my journey of really teaching my kids that took me on this journey to create this company. And I felt it was um, apt for me to call the company after them. So that's how the name came to be. (laughs) So, I mean, knowing your background, you were educated in Nigeria, at least up until your university years. I believe you did a graduate degree abroad, correct? While you were in Europe. So let's unpack that because I don't think people get that. So you just said, you know, a lot of the history you'd received was from a colonized perspective. Yeah. So yeah. that so for so breaking it down for people, that means living in Nigeria. <laughs> yeah. The education you were getting about Nigeria, where where was it coming from? What was what was the deal? Because Nigeria was colonized by the British. Yes. So our educational system is the British educational system. Yes. So we're not learning about the contributions of the African ancestors. We're learning about the queen and that Mungo. They're telling us that Mungo Park came and discovered, you know, (laughs) something in Nigeria. They're teaching us that, you know, the people that colonized us were the ones that brought, you know, civilization and education and spirituality and good roads. So I mean, even, even that, even that good roads, hold on, <laughs> even that good roads. Anyway, sorry, yeah. carry, carry on. But I question the so good roads. I question it as well, because even before they came, we were civilized. We, you know, but before I go that, you know, the way we are taught, you begin to feel like knowledge and progress and education and everything good resides outside of yourself. Mm. You know, that's what the educational system teaches us. Everything good that we have comes from outside. But if you look at it in the reality and if you look at the truth of the history, you know, we in Africa, we're the mother of civilization. Civilization began with us, you know, writing. If you look at writing, it came from Africa. It came from Sudan. Mm -hmm. The first form of writing that ever existed came from Sudan and it was called the Proto-Saharan, even before the Egyptian hieroglyphics, there was the Proto-Saharan, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, mathematics, the first development or manifestation of mathematics started in Africa in the kingdom of Eswatini, you know, with the Lebombo, with the, um, with the Lebombo bone. And then there was, um, the kingdom of the, the Republic, the Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. They also had the Ishango bone. So mathematics started in Africa, even chemistry, chemistry started in Egypt in Kemet, you know? So if you look at civilization, philosophy came from Africa. If you look at, if you, the great philosophers that we we hear of that are Greek, Hippocrates, um, Aristotle, they came to Africa to learn philosophy, Mm. you know, medicine. If you look at the the father of medicine, we're told this, um, Hippocrates, but it's actually Imhotep. He's the one that scientifies medicine as we know it today. A lot of medical procedures that we use today came from the book that he wrote many, 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 many thousands of years ago. So a lot of the civilization we enjoy today came from Africa, but colonized history will tell you that Africans did not develop anything. We didn't contribute anything, you know, so I think the trust of my work is really to tell African history from an African perspective so that we can remember who we we were, 
before we were interrupted. And hopefully that remembrance can really spur us on to achieve greatness. Because there's an African proverb that says, until the lion learns to tell its own history, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. For many years, our stories have been told by the hunter. Right. Right. And now we as the lions, we need to take that power back and begin to tell our own stories, stories that affirm our history, stories that are true to us and stories that really show us what we have done and what we're capable of doing. So that's really what Ordinary Fair is all about. And that's what I try to do with my work. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the fact that you're right. A lot of the history and the teaching always makes Africans seem as the recipients, right? Yeah. So it puts us in a mentality of always receiving from an outside instead of thinking about indigenously what we give and what we produce and what we create. What we continue to give. Yes. So that's right. So I'm curious then at this point, because you, you mentioned you know, when you started this company, what what was the point that you thought to yourself, I need to do this? So was there something that happened? Because keep in mind, you were educated in the, like you were educated in the system. So was there a, a specific turning point where you thought, mm, I'm starting to question what's being told or I need to change sort of what the narrative is? I think there were two things. And um, the first one was when we first went to Netherlands, we decided that we're going to do a lot of travel around Europe. We would go to France to see the Eiffel Tower. Uh We would go to um, Belgium. We would go to Germany. We would go to... So when we were visiting all these places, my kids would always ask me, there's so many beautiful things here. We went to this museum. We saw this. You know, why don't we have these kind of things, you know, in Nigeria? And that took me on a journey to begin to do research. Yeah. They well, because have, some of it has been in Europe because it got to, Somehow, can I, been destroyed. My, look, yeah. look, so there I, was a BBC article yeah, about yeah. the, and they were talking about this art and I was like, y'all could just give it back though. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> give just it back. But re- anyway, release the oh. loot, release the loot. It was looted, <laughs> there you release it. Yeah. So I had to begin to, you know, do some research to show them that, look, we, we do have these things and we did have these things. Some have been stolen, some have been destroyed. And that took me on a journey to also do some research about the Great Wall of the Benin Empire, which was mm-hmm. four times as long as the Great Wall of China, was also in the Guinness Book of Record as, um, the, the I think it was the, the biggest or the greatest man-made, you know, um, invention prior to the mechanical era. And I did this mm-hmm. to show them, I look, you are from the Benin kingdom. You are an adult, you are adult children. This is your heritage. You may not see it existing today, but it existed at one point. And perhaps you are the ones to rebuild it because it was destroyed. You know, so as I was showing them around Europe and they were seeing all these, you know, monuments, you know, of the European mm-hmm. ancestors. I wanted to ju- juxtapose it and also show them, look, you're not left without anything. Your ancestors, your ancestors also did great things. And I want mm-hmm. you to know about it so that when you're in a gathering of your classmates and they're speaking about this and this, you have something to speak about, you know. And then in their classrooms, they would have um, 
lessons on European history, on different, you know, and, and Frank, different, you know, aspects of mm-hmm. European history. I wanted them to also have their own stories so that they could share. For example, in my son's class, um, I think, you know, some months ago, they asked them to share information about a historical figure that they, um, they admired, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said to my son, you know, this is a good opportunity for you to talk about Imhotep, you know? Mm-hmm. Imhotep was the was an Egyptian polymath, and his contributions um, to the world of medicine are still being used today. There's so many medical procedures that doctors use today that came from him. He wrote this book called the Edwin Smith Papyrus that mm-hmm. detailed so many diseases of the, the 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 liver, of the lungs, of the body, and he detailed um, the diagnosis and the healing methods. And mm-hmm. that book is still being used today, you know, in, in medicine. So he laid the foundation of modern medicine as we know it today. And I wanted my son to tell his own story as opposed to looking for somebody from, you know, mainstream history to talk about. So, you know, I think the impetus for me to study, to answer your question was, I really wanted my kids to not feel like they didn't have a history they could be proud of. I wanted them to know their history, to be proud of it, and to be able to talk about it, you know, even in a classroom environment. What was for you, even on this journey, what has been the most surprising thing you've learned as you started to do your own research and build this company out? I think it was about how much I didn't know as well, and how much my view of uh, history and of my African identity was colonized because mm. for me, you know, the, as I was trying to teach them, I realized I was the one that needed to teach myself first, you mm-hmm. know, because there were so many layers of information that had been distorted and fed to me and I had internalized it. And I had to really unpack it, you know, and begin to um, see my history and my ancestors in a different way. Because prior to this research, I'd always felt, you know, I'd bought the Kool-Aid, you know, I'd felt like, you know, um, development, civilization, everything came from the West, you know. And I hadn't really had a lot of access to information that told me otherwise, that told me that greatness came from my my people, you know. So I think the the most important thing was for me to first decolonize my mind and my understanding of history, you know, mm-hmm. before I I could I could do do that for my kids and for the people that I work with. So I guess for someone listening in, what what would you say? I because I, I understand where you're going, but what would you say, or what does it mean to decolonize your mind? So like, what does that process look like, or or? Not even if it's a process, but what does that experience look like for at least for you or for for at least your children and, and the folks you work with? I think that, you know, the first thing is you realize that a lot of times, a lot of the information that we're receiving, first of all, is by default colonized, especially historical information, because it's usually written from a whitened lens, from a whitewashed lens, mm-hmm. you know. And for me, the first step was in every piece of information I received, I would receive, I had to begin to ask myself, okay, whose voice in this story is being heard? Because in every story that you hear or in every narrative that you consume, there's a predominant voice that is speaking. So I had to begin to ask myself, whose voice is being heard? 
whose voice is being suppressed or denied or being relegated to the background? And what's the agenda? What's the purpose of this messaging? Because if you can always be intentional to decipher whose voice or whose narrative or whose story or whose agenda or interest are being pushed in every narrative and you're intentional to be able to also recognize whose voice is being silenced and mm. what the motive and the agenda is, that is the first step to decolonizing anything, whether it be history, whether it be economics, whether it be any piece of information, that's the first step. And I, I know you wrote, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you wrote a children's book because I was looking at it last night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was that, who was that aimed for and what was kind of your mission with that book? So actually um, the book is for children and teens. But for me, I say it's a family book and all the people who have read it say to me, you know, this is a book that I read with my teens. This is Mm. a book I read and I learned a lot because um, I feel like a lot of the people that I interact with, especially on Instagram, people that engage with me on Instagram, they're adults and they come to me and they say to me, I've learned so much from you. Mm. I've learned, you know, so much about history that I didn't know, but I always I sense that they're not cascading this information down to their kids. Mm. And I always feel like, you know, if we as adults had to take the long route to decolonize our understanding of history, we should at least make it easier for our kids. Mm -hmm. We should at least start these conversations with them early so that they don't have to go through the hurdles that we went through. So I wrote this book as a starting point for a conversation between um, kids and their parents, you know, about a piece of African history mm-hmm. because I sense that when you write a children's book, children don't read it alone. They usually read it with the parents, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So if they're reading it with the parents, they're going to ask the parents questions and it's going to force the parents or encourage them to also do some research in order to be able to navigate these kind of conversations. So that was why I decided to, do, to write this in a children's book. Well, it's really about the story of the Great Bini Empire. And my kids are direct descendants. They're from, they're, they're Edo people. They're from the Bini Empire because their dad is a Bini man. Yeah. And in the Nigerian culture, um, the children take the um, heritage of their father. Yeah. So I wrote this book because I wanted my kids to also have this bit of their story in print. Mm. So they could, they could read it. They could have it. And I wanted, you know, the wider audience to hear it. So it's a story about the great Bini Empire before they were interrupted and colonized by the British. Mm-hmm. And I talk about the Great Wall of Bini Empire, which a lot of people don't know about. Even Bini people don't know about it. And I think everybody should know this story. So this wall was four times longer than the Great Wall of China. And this was done many, many years ago, you know. And it took the Edo ancestors, I think, 600 years to build this wall. You know, it took them so long. And this wall was like... um a wall that it was a wall built to protect them. Mm-hmm. It was a wall built, you know, to just show off their glory, to show off their skills in architecture, in mathematics. And they were very proud of this wall. And the British came in um, the year 1897 and they totally destroyed and decimated this wall. But I still think that this wall, the story of this wall needs to be told because it's such a beautiful story of African excellence and greatness. You know, before we had 
tools, you know, build modern building tools of today, you know, they built this wall with the local tools that they had. And it was such an, a magnificent wall that it got into the Guinness Book of Record as the longest and the greatest wall that ever existed at that time. So um, that's why I wrote the book, so that kids could have um, information about this bit of history in an informational, educational, and in a very fun way. It's a really fun book. There are really great pictures. There's a bit of history. There's a bit of culture. There's a bit of language in it, you know, but I wanted to pass the message along, you know. So that's why I wrote the book as a labor of love to share the information, you know, for my kids, for myself and for people all over the world that may be interested in, you know, a different version of African history beyond us being the recipients of the paternalism of the West or the global North. And I think it's important that that the audience understands that you have created content that is African centered, but it is available to anyone who has interest. Would that be accurate? It's accurate. I always say to people that African history is world history because, you know, the world did start in Africa. And apart from that, you know, we as Africans, we have learned European history. We've learned American history. So in the spirit of reciprocity, you know, (laughs) it behoves, you know, everyone to learn our history as well, you know? So, um, you know, and then, you know, just expand your mind, you know, beyond what the mainstream narrative will have you believe about African history. Wouldn't you want to hear an African story from an African perspective, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, like I said, the thing that I'm in addition to the fact that you are working and documenting this for parents and children is the fact that there are language opportunities and courses as far as for indigenous African languages. And I mean, basically you're like the Duolingo yeah, <laughs> of the you know, African I, I girl. That, you know, <laughs> Still because, trademark that. You're like the Duolingo of African oh languages. <laughs> no, but you know, you know something about me. I create things that I need. Uh-huh, if but, I need something. But why else will you create there. it now? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Go ahead. But I, I, I'll take it, Duolingo. Yeah. I'll just, I'll add it to my LinkedIn profile. I mean, you know, I mean, there's trademarking, but no, but, but to be, no, but to be very honest, I mean, I've been doing this stuff for a while. I think you're one of the few, there's maybe only one other person I can think about, but it's not to the scope that you're doing, to be honest, that is looking at African languages and, and, and sharing, sharing their, the knowledge and being able to teach people at least basic conversation. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have a thing. To be honest, yeah, and, just, and you know who would even be interested? I'm, I'm saying this now for the people who are listening. All, all of us two who have African parents and didn't know, <laughs> didn't know yeah. the language. You're, you're correct. But do you know something Something that I found? Because sometimes you start doing something and you're targeting a particular group. Uh-huh. But you have this pleasant surprise where people you didn't even think <laughs> about come to you. There's this demographic that I've been working with and supporting that I never even imagined. Mm. So I, I have some parents who come to me Mm -hmm. and they are trans, they are interracial adoptees. Mm. And they come to me and they say, you know what, Um, we've adopted this child or these children, you know, Ah. and we want them to have a sense of their culture and their language. And so these children, you know, we're able to give them something that their parents are not able to give them by virtue of the fact that the adoption process was transracial. We're able to teach them their language and also a bit of the culture 
and they, they, and since they're interacting with teachers in Africa, mm. like we have these two students in um, US mm-hmm. and they're learning Amharic. Mm-hmm. It's an Ethiopian yeah. language. America, yeah. And the teacher is in Ethiopia. The is able to, in Ethiopia, is able to, for some of the lessons, she goes out so they can see what Ethiopia looks like, you know, to the shops, to the market. And they love it so much, you know. So I never imagined that this demographic or this group of people would need this service. But now, you know, yeah. I know, but I'm not surprised because even with the Black expat, some some of the families that we have that have followed and reached out have actually been, to your point, families that have adopted Black children yeah. And 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 they are expats as well. So they may have adopted yeah. a child in a country they were in or they adopted them yeah. in the States or wherever and then went abroad. Either yeah. way, there's there is a I know you don't think about it because it's not your life. But I am not the least bit surprised that there would be a special for transnational, trans international yeah. um, adoptees. Yeah. yeah. And then we have a lot of um, our brothers and sisters, you know, um, who um, their ancestors were taken away yeah. during the African Mafa. Yeah. The African, I call it Mafa because that is what it is. And a lot of them have done um, DNA testing to find out exactly where their ancestors are lies. Yeah. And, and, and when they, they find that information, they say to me, you know what? I feel that like our language was stripped away and taken away from us. And now I want to reclaim mm. it. So they're able to come and they may never reach, you know, um, intermediate or advanced level, but at least they learn the basics. Yeah. They're able to learn the culture. They're able to get some connections. They, they even some that say, you know what? I need a Yoruba name. We had this teacher who was always, you know, they would come and they would say, you look like, <laughs> you look like this. So I think this name would suit you. And he would give them, you know, Yoruba names and all. So it's for me, I love to do this, you know, and um, um, I'm happy that, you know, I get to do something that I enjoy doing and I get to support people. And I also get to learn in the process. I say to people, I don't know everything, yeah. you know, I'm on this journey of unlearning and learning, you know, same as you, you know, and, you know, you know, there's some things I don't know, you know, you can teach me, I can teach you. And this is how the reciprocity goes. We teach each other and we build this community of knowledge sharing, of learning, of togetherness, mm-hmm. you know, man, you're look, girl. Your story, <laughs> you got me all excited. I'm like, I need to go sign up for a class and see what, <laughs> see what language I need to learn real quick. Because my issue always is, I used to hang out with a lot of Nigerians in university. And I remember this one time, this woman came up. It was somebody's auntie. She just assumed I was Yoruba. I'm like, my dad. And then, you, do look, you look I know, I look, but I'm Cameroonian. You, you know that border now. I could. Yeah. So, yeah. so here's the funny part. She started talking to me in Yoruba. And my friend told me, he was like, auntie, she's not Yoruba. Then you know proper <laughs> Nigerians. She got mad at me that I was not Yoruba and started yelling yeah. at me. And I'm like, but you're the one who came up to me. I was my name Yoruba. How dare you? The audacity. <laughs> but um hearing your story and the work that you shared, man, I I am going to encourage everyone. We've got all your website links, all your social media. So that is gonna be up on our website and it's gonna be in this in the show notes. I know that you've got a great offer going on and I'm going to put that information as well because I, I, I know for a fact there are listeners who will want yeah. to get this, get this information yeah. and they will want to work with you. And so 
Thank you for coming on to this podcast, even with all our technical difficulties that y'all are not going to hear about. Uh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank oh you for my God. Me. Thank you for having and, me. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. You know, it's, um, I feel like we could talk for hours. Oh, we know? can. I don't, don't think I won't bring you back on because I will find yeah. something, especially if you get to Senegal, I will bring, I will bring you back on to talk about having gone to Dakar, but I, I am so grateful for your time. And like I said, if you are, are interested in further information, you can check out theblackexpat.com. We will have all her information and social media up there. But we thank you again for listening. Till next time. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficchio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at global chat pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.